you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, will you go to the book of Acts? Because today we find ourselves in a new year, and we are starting a new book, a new study in the book of Acts. And so here at New Heights Church, we, we love the Bible. I can't say that enough. We love the Bible. We love going through books of the Bible, right? And today... We're going to be in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to try to, to look at verses 1 through 8. And today's going to be a little different because it's going to serve more as an introduction. We are going to go through Acts. We're going to go through verse by verse, but we're going to go a little lighter today because today is more of an introduction. And you guys know, at least those who attend New Heights Church, that when I say light, that's an hour and a half um, exposition on the first eight verses. No. Now, I absolutely love the book of Acts because it details the movement that you and I are a part of to this very day. That movement being called the local church. And I have always been a fan of history. I've said if I wasn't called into full-time ministry, I'd probably be teaching history at some high school or some college because I just, I love history. It was the only class in high school that I enjoyed. And I probably, in all of my history classes, I got A's and the rest of them I got all C's. And dad always said, well, we need to thank, thank God for baseball because if it wasn't for baseball, Justin probably wouldn't have made it through high school. And that's true. You at least needed a C average to play on the sports team. So that's what I needed to do, get the C. And then, of course, I went to Bible college and got pretty excited about studying the Bible. And just so you know, your pastor did better than C's in Bible college and seminary, okay? Somebody, somebody praise God. <laughs> But I've had the privilege of traveling the world as both a missionary kid and as a missionary myself. And one of the things that I would like to do whenever I traveled is I wanted to visit historical sites. So I've seen so many neat places uh, over the years. I've seen the Taj Mahal. I've got to visit Mayan ruins of Central America. I've seen and visited ancient castles of England. Uh, I've got to see the jail where, where the Apostle Paul was imprisoned. I, I saw where the Apostle Thomas was martyred. And then, of course, I saw Lambeau Field. <laughs> that was a very historical site. So none of, you, uh, none of you are agreeing with me. But it was very, very historical. And it was a neat thing. But I, I, I've been all over and I've seen some incredible places. And one of the things especially most recently what I've done is everywhere I go, I try to visit a famous historical church. And so I've, been, I've done that here in Ohio. We have some very famous historical churches in Ohio. I did it in New York City. Uh, England was amazing because so many incredible historical churches there. And Europe actually altogether. Just so many different places that were historical. And I've seen some amazing places where some amazing sermons had been preached. Where some amazing movements of the Holy Spirit had taken place. And... and on top of that is some of the most amazing uh, church architecture I've ever seen in my entire life. Just, I'm talking beautiful, beautiful buildings, breathtaking. But in so many of these churches, I couldn't help but notice that the church just had a handful of people attending. And some of them weren't even operating or functioning as a church anymore. They actually were functioning as a historical site. So it became more like a, a monument or a museum. These beautiful buildings... I thought to myself, don't just build themselves. 
So as I sat and I, I went through and I got the tour, I couldn't help but think these beautiful buildings didn't just build themselves. These beautiful glass stained windows didn't just create themselves. And just so you know, if there's any lovers of glass stained windows, I'm starting a campaign. Let's get the glass stained windows back. Come on, who's excited? Okay, good, you're all excited, because here's what I need. I need some, some people who are very excited about the glass stained windows being shown again to donate some money, because <laughs> there is some work that needs to be done on those windows, and so we have to actually reframe them and fix some of the glass, but man, that is beautiful, and I want to get them going again. I have I've digressed, okay? I got to get back to where we were going. Beautiful buildings don't just build themselves. One point, there were real people who heard from God, who had a vision for the community, who came in and invested real time, real money, real energy into building that church for that community. And I would think about that. I'd think about all the prayer and the sacrificial giving that would have gone into building that church. And most of these historical churches, they had, at some point, they either had plaques or they had timelines, and you could go see, and some of, some of them had images of what it would have been like all those years ago when the church was packed, when it was full, when it was vibrant, and there was so much life. Some of them even had their pulpits remain. I've, I've got pictures of uh, me standing behind pulpits where Smith Wigglesworth has preached and just some different mighty men of God had preached. And I would, would see the pulpit, I would see a pipe organ usually, and I thought to myself, at one point this was used to play worship songs to Jesus. People come, would come and people would hear the word of God. But at some point between the inception of that church and now, it went from being a movement to being a monument. And that was all that remained. It was a monument. And as we begin our study in the book of Acts, one thing that we are going to quickly see is that the picture of the local church is so different from that of an abandoned building. It's, I mean, it's so different of that of an abandoned, beautiful building. We will see that the church of Jesus Christ is a vigorous, spirit-filled, mission-focused, multiplying movement of people, not buildings, who are taking the message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to some of the most dangerous places, most hostile environments, and really just hard-to-get places. The church in the beginning was a movement, it was a movement, a movement built around conviction that Jesus had died as the only Savior for sinners and that he had risen from the dead, proving he was who he said he was, that he was the rightful Lord of, of the earth and all the people everywhere were now commanded to repent and they were invited to come home to him. In fact, in the Greek New Testament, the word translated church is ekklesia. In fact, the word in Greek means an assembly or a gathering of people around an idea. And actually, if you break the word ekklesia down, it comes from ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means called out. The idea is an assembly of people called around an idea. Now, that, that really probably isn't what you and I would think of today when we hear the word church. Most of us are going to think of a, a church building. We're going to think of the steeple. We're going to think of... Um, all the different beautiful architect, architecture. I remember when I first preached on the book of Acts, I would talk to my kids about, we preached through the book of Acts in Thailand, and I would ask my kids, what's a church? And the first thing they would say is, is the building. That's what they talked about. Church is a building. It's the, it's the building with the cross on it, or it's the building with the beautiful windows. Um, and 
And that's because at some point in history, people began to think of a church as a place you went to for religious services. Some point in history. And I won't get into a historical lesson for you today. So, But it, our, our word, our English word for church actually comes from the German word for church and uh, not the Greek word. And the, the word for church in German actually means a sacred place where you gather for religious purposes. The problem with that is it changes the way that people perceive what the church is. It changed the fundamental way that people related to the church. People started going to church as a place you attend. Or even worse, an event that you had to sit through. That was church. You see, it stopped being a movement that people were a part of. And when that happens, the church becomes an institution. An institution that provides services for people. But the book of Acts describes the church so differently. It's not at all how the, the book of Acts describes the church. It paints a portrait very different from that idea. It builds a portrait of a church as an assembly built around a movement. The church was never intended to be a monument of where God once was, but a movement of where God is working in the world. The church is a movement of God's spirit through God's people accomplishing God's mission all for God's glory. That's what the church is. And one thing we need to understand today is that what we read in the book of Acts is not something that's relegated to 2,000 years ago. It's something that is designed and intended for today. We're going to see how God works through the Holy Spirit to empower his people to do what would be impossible to do on our own. We're going to see how God designed for us to minister to each other. We're going to see his pattern for building his church, his plan for reaching the world. And you're going to be shocked, but there's not like a 10-step a program to getting a healthy church. I don't see a lot of the stuff I read in church growth books in the book of Acts. Some of the conferences that I've been to about church growth, I don't see a lot of that in the book of Acts. No, we see God's... God's plan, God's pattern for building his church, his plan for reaching the world. And was, as we unpack this text in this book as a whole, I'm, I'm praying that we would capture a bigger vision. That God would open our eyes as a corporate body to something bigger. That God would light a fire under us and would, that we would grasp all the, the fact that all of us are tied into this worldwide mission were God's team doing his work in the world and that he would reinvigorate any lost passion that we have for the mission of God through the local church. So if you have your place in Acts chapter one, we're gonna start in verse one and we're gonna make our way to verse 11. And I want you to know, actually the first, first 11 verses of the book of Acts, every single verse mentions Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity without Jesus Christ. It's important for us to see that before we begin. And I'm also gonna say this before I, I pray that we all, everybody does this. This is humanity. When we come to a text, oftentimes we will view the text through the lens of our own experience and our own culture. And we have a lot of people that are coming from different cultural backgrounds here today. We have a lot of people that are coming from maybe even a different theological perspective today. And a lot of times we'll draw our conclusions when it comes to theology based upon some of the experiences we've had. And so here's what I want to do today. No matter what background you come from, I want you to be very intentional today and, and actually 
throughout the year as we study the book of Acts to pray that the Holy Spirit would allow you to read the text and to grasp the message of the Bible. And that's, that's going to take some intentionality on our part because we're going to, I do this. I grew up as a Pentecostal. I grew up in the Assemblies of God. I'm fifth generation Assemblies of God pastor. And I grew up in the Assemblies. And sometimes that's not always good. There, there's, there's been times where I've grown up and I've, I've experienced things culturally that I've not liked. And there's been abuse, especially when it comes to the Pentecostal theology or the Pentecostal doctrine. And it's almost made me want to go the completely opposite way. And all of a sudden, I found myself as an adult trying to, trying to come up with a theology that maybe, maybe puts a band-aid on my theological disappointments in my life. Does that make sense? Sometimes we've, we've had negative experiences, we've had bad experiences, and it causes us to want to just throw the whole thing out. I will be the first one to tell you this, that we have had abuse in the Assemblies of God when it comes to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I'll be the first one to tell you that. I'll also be the first one to tell you that doesn't mean you throw out the doctrine. If it's in the Bible, you've got to look at it. So no matter who you are today or whatever your background is, we're going to go to the Word of God today. We're going to look at the Word of God. We're going to spend a year in the book of Acts. Did you just hear me? A year in the book of Acts studying from God's Word. And so close your eyes and bow your heads and pray with me. Father, I ask that as we look into your Word this morning that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. God, I know that there are so many of us today here in this building and maybe watching online that desperately, desperately need to hear from you. They need your peace. They need your encouragement. They need your intervention. And some of us are coming out of a difficult year in 2022. Some of us desperately need a sense of your reality, your power, and your presence in our life. In fact, there are some today that might even be questioning all of that, your power, your presence. And so, Father, magnify yourself at this time. Speak directly and prophetically into our current situations. And I pray that you would allow the word of God to do the work of God in the hearts of the people of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look with me real quick. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, I'm going to let you know that this is probably going to be a different uh, series than I've ever done because the book of Acts is so unique. I'm going to go through it verse by verse. And originally I was going to do just one Sunday just on an introduction because the book of Acts, is, it's just so unique. I thought, man, we could do one Sunday all on an introduction. And instead of doing that, because... The book of Acts, there's so many times as, as we're preaching verse by verse and going through it, we're going to be referring back to different chapters and different verses. And so I'm really going to let the text speak for itself today. So we're just jumping in right now and we're going to unpack this. But here, here we see, this is important, we got to stop because real quick, you need to understand this is a real book written by a real person and his name was Luke. Luke was a doctor. And this, this Dr. Luke is the guy who's writing this. And in Colossians 4.14 is where we're first introduced to, to Luke. Paul calls him the beloved physician. Well, not where we're first introduced, but we get a glimpse into who this person is. And then we, we meet him for the very first time in Troas, where he joins Paul and Silas and Timothy on the second missionary journey. We'll see that in Acts chapter 16. And, and he, may, 
he may have been converted there and joined the missionary team as some kind of staff doctor. We really don't know because the text doesn't tell us and history doesn't tell us a whole lot about it. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time trying to explain who he was. We just know he's the author and we know he was a doctor and we know he was a companion of, of Paul. But actually he was much more than just a doctor. He traveled with Paul for years, and he went with him finally to Rome where Paul died. And one of the most moving things Paul ever records in his, in his letters is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, his last letter. During his final imprisonment in Rome, he, he says this, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. Now I think that, makes me, that gives me an insight of, to who Luke was. Nobody else was with Paul when he was being in prison in Rome, but Luke alone was with me. Tell you, man, all these years, all these travels, including two years in Palestine, Luke's taking notes about the works and the words of Jesus and the progress of the church, and finally God moves him to write a two-volume work that makes up more of the New Testament than what any other New Testament writer wrote, including the Apostle Paul himself. So Luke's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. That's what he means by in the first book. That's Luke referring to the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke, it ends with Jesus ascending into heaven, and we're left with Jesus vanishing out of their sight, and and then that's the end. And most people would read the end of the Gospels and think, okay, now what? I mean, what an incredible story, but that can't be the ending And it's not the ending because in the book of Acts we get the sequel to the gospel accounts. So now who is this guy named Theophilus? Well, he's the same guy that Luke mentions in his first volume. So in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he's the same guy that Luke mentions in Luke. Same author writing to the same person. Again, part one, part two. All right, but who else was Theophilus? Well, We'll spend a little time. I don't want to get into it a whole lot, but there's two different theories. Number one, the name Theophilus is a Greek name that means lover of God or one who loves God. So there are some commentators who have have said, well, Luke's probably writing to all people who love God. A very general form of greeting to anybody who loves God. And then the second theory, which I tend to favor, is that because Theophilus is an actual name, it would mean that Paul's actually writing to an actual person instead of just a group of people generically. So honestly, we don't know a whole lot about Theophilus. I mean, he's, he's only mentioned in Luke and Acts, and we know he must have been a companion to Luke in some way. He likely was the underwriter to his writing project, but we don't know for sure. And so instead of going over all the different theories, I want to get to what is of particular interest here in verse 1, and I want you to look at it again because there's something that is very important here. All that Jesus began to do and teach all that he began to do and teach john calvin calls this a holy knot so the next time you're tying your shoes think about jesus's works and jesus's words right they go together in a holy knot all right so some people really like jesus's uh, works they love it jesus 
Jesus healed the sick. He cared about the poor. He fought for women's rights and kids' rights. And they just, they love Jesus' works, but they struggle with his words. Especially things like when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. They like what he did. They like his works, but they struggle with his words. Well, John Calvin would say this is a holy knot. They go together. Jesus' words and Jesus' works go together. And the Gospel of Luke records Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And, and then you come to the book of Acts, and all of a sudden we see um, he, he, he's talking about all that he began, but it's a, it's a continuing thing. It's not like it ends. Began implies continuation. So it's not that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus worked, and now in Acts, the church works. But Jesus worked in his fleshly body in Luke, and now through his body, the church in Acts. He's invited the church, not, not to do it for him, but to join him as he does it through them. And hey, guess what, guys? Listen, this is why Easter is so important. We celebrate the fact that Jesus isn't done doing Jesus isn't done doing. We celebrate that Jesus, he's not a dead teacher, a dead savior, but he's a living, resurrected king who is still alive and still powerfully at work in the world through his people. That's the Jesus we serve. Now, you guys have heard the saying, keep on keeping on, or keep trucking. I heard it all the time as a missionary. Anytime I would express any kind of uh, discomfort, To my area director, he would tell me, keep on keeping on, Justin. Keep trucking. Keep moving forward. That's how you're going to make it in missions. Keep on keeping on. This is essentially what Luke is saying. Jesus is still trucking. He's still keeping on. He's still going. He didn't stay in history. He is still at work in the world. So what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is still doing his thing. We're going to see the power We're going to see the method, the extent, and the length of Jesus' continuing work in the book of Acts. And I need you to take this truth home today. The finished work of Jesus was on the cross. The unfinished work of Jesus continues through the new generation. This one, the next one, and then the next one, all the way down to our generation right now, Jesus is continuing to work through this people. Jesus' work continues It continues, and I'll tell you how it continues. By the power of his Holy Spirit, by the power by which he is continuing his ministry is through the Holy Spirit. Look with me real quick. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. The NIV version says he commanded them. He commanded them. I want to I say something. What we're talking about today is not an option. It's essential. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's an imperative. So he, he commands them to stay, to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days 
from now. Jesus is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, honestly, if, if we were to be transparent today, most people don't really know much about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and sometimes what they do know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit it, it is not accurate. Sometimes what they know is based on experience only or on what somebody may have taught, but not necessarily based on what the Bible says. This is why I love verse-by-verse preaching. Do you know, I don't choose verse-by-verse preaching because it's easier. (laughs) No, in fact, it's a lot harder. If I did topical messages, I probably could only uh, dedicate one hour a week to preparing messages. Doing expository preaching, it's like I've got to do 30 hours of sermon prep Uh, every week and you can ask Pam because she has to guard that door and make sure nobody gets in to to bother me. It's difficult, strenuous work to prepare expository sermons. But I love it because you can't get away from certain difficult truths in God's God's scripture when you do verse-by-verse preaching. I mean, if it's in God's word, you've got to address it. (laughs) Can't deny that the Bible addresses the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I, when I see this, when I see Jesus telling this group of people to wait, all that goes through my mind is how important this must have been. Because he's talking to the disciples who had, at that point, they had experience, more experience than anyone else on the planet when it came to ministering. They had cast out demons. They had prayed for sick people to get well. They had all kinds of signs and wonders, and yet he's telling them. He's telling that group of people who had just spent three years with him, he's saying to them to wait. I don't want you to do anything until you have received what I promised you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, my mind goes to what they've already experienced. They've already experienced the supernatural. They've already experienced so many signs and wonders, and yet Jesus is telling them to wait. Without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, our experience in the supernatural and how we are witnesses is going to be dramatically reduced. He's talking to a group of people, in my opinion, who were very successful in ministry. And so... His very first commandment to this squad, his first command is to wait. Do not depart. You've got to wait. And he's telling them to wait because they are about to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So important because if you look at the Gospels, they don't really portray the disciples as people who are very courageous. And I want to talk about two aspects today. Um, You know, you... We know their history because if you guys have read the Bible, you get it. The apostle Peter was so scared that he denied Jesus three times to a little girl. The rest of the apostles had abandoned Jesus and were hiding uh, back in the upper room. They had seen their leader die and now they're cowering in fear, hoping their fate isn't the same as his. That's how the gospels betray this group of men. And so Jesus understands that they're going to need a little help before they go out and turn the world upside down. You're not in a position to do this on your own. He tells them to wait. Now, you also need to think about all that's happened at this moment. Because I don't believe that these disciples are the same disciples that we read about in the Gospels either. And they haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit quite yet. So I want you to remember when Jesus told the disciples at the end of the Gospels to go into all the world and make disciples, Jesus told them, I have a mission and you have a part in that mission. I want you to leave the life you know and I want you to go. And you might say, well, most people are going to be like, look, I'm established here. I'm rooted here. I have a life. A lot of these apostles had wives and had children and had families. They had plans. 
They can't just go. But remember, these disciples, they just saw Jesus die. Then they saw him come back to life. They believe Jesus is who he says he is now. They know now that Jesus is God in human flesh. It's the living Lord risen from the dead. So now when he tells them to go, I imagine, man, they're, they're not, they might be nervous and they might be afraid, but they're willing to do it now. They're willing to do it. They haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they're willing to do it. They've encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ and they are ready to go. And Jesus tells them to wait. I want you to go into the world and I'm putting you on a mission. You have to imagine how excited they must have been. Man, he just came back from the dead. He's been with us for 40 days. This time we're gonna go. They're ready. I, I believe that they were ready to go at this time. That's why Jesus had to tell them to wait. Think about it. The same disciples. Jesus knows these disciples. He wouldn't have had to tell them to wait before. He would have had to kind of nudge them. You know when you're teaching a kid to swim and he just won't get in the water and you finally just kind of give him a little gentle, lovely push? (laughs) You know, Jesus had to tell them to wait because they were excited to go. However, even with their zeal over the top at this time, in all of that excitement, They probably would have been tempted to put the cart before the horse and go do what Jesus told them to do, but they would have been doing it in the energy of their own flesh. And he tells them to wait. Now look with me at six and seven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This is why I love the Bible, doesn't hide the apostles' humanity. They still don't get all of it, okay? They're excited, they're ready to go, but they still don't understand quite fully what Jesus is about to do. And I think it's good to know that this group of guys, they were still very human, but even, even after they had experienced the resurrection, they still don't understand it totally, but that God is gonna still fill them with his Holy Spirit, uh, but they are who they are. They are who they are. They're still growing. You know, we're always growing, That's the sign of a true follower of Jesus is that we grow. We constantly grow. We shouldn't be the same like we were a year ago. We should have grown spiritually over the the course of 2022. We should be growing spiritually all the time. They've not reached perfection, and I'm encouraged by that because I'm not perfect. I'm always learning, and yet still in my imperfection, God chooses to use me. That should encourage you today. These guys were far from perfect but we're about to see how God uses them in incredible ways. So now, here's the truth too though. If we're gonna be truthful with each other, you and I would have probably asked the same question. It's so easy to throw these guys under the bus and be like, these fools, they just never get it. No, you and I probably would have done the same thing. Probably would have asked the same exact question because you have to remember that by this time, Jesus had been promising that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. He says, that's the promise of my father. That's the other helper. I'm gonna send the other helper. He was saying that even before he died. Now that he's defeated death, he's saying it again. And all of these men, all of them had grew up in Jewish homes. They've been taught to believe that the Messiah is going to come and not only come, but establish a kingdom. And so many Old Testament passages that describe the kingdom. Passages that had promises, and some of these promises talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but not just the coming of the Holy Spirit, but in conjunction with the kingdom of the Messiah here on earth. So, promises that describe the Messiah pouring out his spirit on the inhabitants of Israel. So you can kind of understand why the disciples would have asked the question. 
oh man, is this, is this going to happen? Is this the time? Is this what we're about to experience? Is Israel about to be restored? And I love Jesus' answer. He, tell them, he tells them, it's, it's not about when, it's about what. It's not about when, it's about what. He knows the disciples are very worried and concerned about when. When is the kingdom going to be restored? But Jesus wants them to forget the when and think about the what. What a powerful truth for us today as we live in uncertain times. We see things that are happening today that we've not experienced before. We see a growing hostility towards the church. As a parent, there are times where I get worried and concerned about my children. They don't live in the world that I lived in growing up. It's a different world. And I could easily start to worry about, man, when, when is God going to fix these things? I know the Bible says he's going to come back. I want to know when. And I, I could start focusing all my energy on when, when, when's, when's he going to come back? And I think it's a good reminder for us today to sometimes stop thinking about the when and focus on the what. The what still needs to happen. And what's the what that, that the church goes out and reaches the world for Jesus? So just like the disciples were all worried, and they had reason to be worried too. We don't have time to go on it today, but they, they would have been concerned about the, the, the times politically that they were experiencing. And Jesus tells them, you've got to focus on the mission. I've told you what you need to know about, about I'm coming back. You know how, you know how this story ends. I'm going to come back. That should be enough peace for you, but here's what you need to do. Stay focused on the mission. Here's my encouragement to you today, church. America's not what it was when I grew up, when I was growing up. It's changed. It's different. It's very different. My kids are experiencing things I never had to experience as a child. Now, my dad would say the same thing to my generation, though. And my grandpa would say the same thing to to my dad's generation. And here's what I would tell you to do. Jesus wants you to have the peace peace that comes from him and only him. It's a peace that this world does not understand and he, he wants to give you that peace. You know how the story ends and he's saying, I'm gonna take care of you, but I've got a mission for you and I want you to focus on that mission. So stay focused on the mission. What a powerful truth for us today. But I love, I love what he does is Jesus gently makes this shift back to the mission in verse eight. Look what he says. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the key verse in all of Acts. This one right here, Acts 1.8. Key verse. I absolutely love this verse. Jesus' life and his power are not just to be admired. Jesus' life and his power, it's to be experienced. You think about how amazing Jesus was. I mean, he was perfect. His life was sinless. Think about it for a minute. He never committed a sin. He never punched his brother out of anger. I've only done it a few times, but he never lied his way out of a problem. He never cheated. He never sinned. He said no to sin. He said yes to God. He never got jealous of someone. He never gossiped about someone. He never had an inappropriate thought about a woman. He was a man in his 30s. It's pretty difficult not to admire the life of Jesus, but admiration is not enough. Jesus doesn't want you just to admire his life. He wants you to experience his life through the person, the presence, the power of the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you will receive 
power and why to be my witnesses. Witness was a term used in court. You testified about what you had seen. A witness's job is not really to do anything, but just to tell people what has already been done. Jesus literally gives them the largest assignment you could ever imagine. And then with not a whole lot of explanation, not a real plan of action, at least in their minds, not a real plan of action, he leaves. And they're left thinking, wait, did Jesus just say the entire world, the whole world? Jesus is floating up to the sky, and he tells them to go into all the world. And they're probably thinking, did he mean all the world? Jesus is thinking, yeah, I, you don't even know what all the world is yet. You don't even have a real idea or a concept of what all the world is. I do, and I'm telling you to go into all the, all the world. This is where it all began, folks. 2,000 years later, here we are with more Christians on the planet than any other religious group, all stemming from a group of 12 fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors. The book of Acts is still being written through the followers of Jesus Christ, and you and I are today, or you and I today are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. So here's the main point that I think Jesus and Luke are teaching us. Special power is essential for being a witness for Christ. Special power is essential for being a witness for Christ. The Bible tells us that we will receive power. Now, in Greek, the word is dunamis. Dunamis. Actually, there was a, before I get into the definition, there was a Swedish chemist um, a few years ago. He was working, and he, sco- he discovered this really powerful substance. And so he had to call it something because he created it, he invented it, and he wanted a name attached to it. And he called a friend of his who was a Greek scholar, and he asked, hey, what's the Greek word for power? Dunamis. Dunamis. It's the same word here. It's dunamis. What's that? It's di- dynamite. It's, it's actually where we get the word dynam- dynamite from. Our word in the English language, dynamite, comes from the biblical word for the Holy Spirit. Think about it. We get our dynamite from the Holy Spirit, explosive power. Strong's describes it as mighty power or miraculous power. You will receive miraculous power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Ten times this word is used in the book of Acts, and every single time it's used, it tells us of what it looks like, what it does. We get to see what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like in our life and what it does in our life. It becomes a textbook to understand what the Holy Spirit's power does in us if we have it. And any time the Holy Spirit shows up, you don't have to ask, was that the Holy Spirit? Stuff happens. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking, I, let me be really careful. I'm not talking about crazy, out of order nonsense. I'm talking about power. The holy power from the Holy Spirit's presence. I've been in a lot of church services where they're like, woo, the Holy Spirit's presence is here. And it's just a bunch of people dancing around up on stage, doing crazy things. I'm not talking about that talking about a real genuine move of the holy spirit you don't have to ask was dynamite there i couldn't tell no when the holy spirit shows up you know when the holy spirit shows up you know it there's power things happen things change the biggest thing is life's I don't understand why we focus on so much of what happens at the altar because the biggest, most effective sign that the move of the Holy Spirit was genuine is that lives go out here and they're changed. That is the biggest fruit of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Christian life is about that kind of power, that kind of supernatural, God-given power, and that power is special. I say special power is essential because it keeps, it's because it takes power just to become a Christian. But it takes another dimension of power to be an effective witness for Jesus. You know, these disciples, they were already Christians before they received the power that Jesus was promising here. And, And just so you know, so no matter what cultural background you came from, no matter what denomination you came from, I want you to know that this next part I got from Pastor John Piper, who's a Baptist minister. Okay, so just so you understand, and, and he, says, he says that these disciples were already Christians before they received this power that Jesus was promising. In fact, they were remarkably lively Christians before this special power fell upon them at Pentecost and then fell upon them repeatedly throughout the book of Acts. So what, what do you picture the disciples doing in the 10 days between this final farewell and the day of Pentecost? Do you, do you think of them as, as weak powerless Christians with no joy, no hope, no courage until Pentecost happened? Well, if, if you think that, just look at Luke 24, 50 through 53 because it's going to tell us. Okay, well, no, it's not, but I'm going to read it. <laughs> In Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, it says, When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into the heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. What were the disciples doing while they waited for this power? Two things. They went to the temple worshipping God. They met in the upper room and they devoted themselves to prayer. That does not sound like weak, powerless Christians to me. Committed to worshiping and praising God and committed to prayer. They were praying in their smaller assembly and they were joyfully worshiping and blessing God in the public temple. Now all of that, that prayer and that great joy that comes with worshiping and praising God is evidence of God's power. That's power. Because these things, they don't happen without the work of God's power in their life. So you can come to the conclusion that what Jesus is telling them to wait for is a special power. Something more than the ordinary experience of power that makes a person a Christian and makes him love worship and have joy and go to prayer. What Luke is wanting to show us in these passages is that special power is essential for being a witness for Jesus Christ. So... Here's what I want to do, believer. I want you to read Jesus' promise in verse 8 as a direct statement to you. To you. But you, and you can insert your name, but you, Justin, but you, Liz, but you, Enos, but you, Tim, but you, Tom, but, but you, but you, but you, Ian, but you, insert your name there, but you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness. God wants you to be empowered so you can testify. The Holy Spirit does a whole lot of things in the book of Acts, in Luke and Acts. But the main thing he does is he fills people to preach. He fills people to preach and not just preachers and teachers. So let me tell you something. This is, this is for everyone. It's not just us preachers and us teachers who have to preach God's message. Because guess what? It's real easy for me to get up on stage and preach to a group of Christians. That's easy. It's a whole nother thing when I'm out on the street and I have a chance and an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with someone who doesn't know him. Then I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
God wants you to be empowered so you can testify. So you can be really introverted. You might be really shy. That doesn't give you an excuse or a get out of jail free card. It doesn't give you a hall pass, okay? (laughs) You are called to testify about Jesus, to preach. In fact, anytime you see someone filled with the spirit in the Bible, they proclaim the word of God to others. See, filling of the spirit right here, our heart produces the words of God right here, our mouth. The Holy Spirit fills our heart and that produces the words right here. Luke 1.15, John the Baptist, being filled with the Spirit, proclaims the coming of the Lord. Luke 1.41, Elizabeth, being filled with the Spirit, proclaimed blessing over Mary. Luke 1.67, Zechariah, being filled with the Spirit, prophesied about the coming glory of Jesus. Acts 2.4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost, and they begin to declare God's praises in multiple languages. Acts 4.8, Peter's filled with the Spirit and preaches to the rulers that Jesus is their only hope of salvation. Acts 4.31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit, and they speak the word of God boldly in the face of severe persecution. Acts 9.20, Paul is filled with the Spirit, and he immediately begins to preach in the synagogues. Is this you? Is this you? Do you regularly proclaim God's word to others and bring them to Jesus? Because this is a sign of somebody filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in the notes I sent out to you today, we made a boo-boo, we made an error. I wanted to quote Pastor J.D. Greer and Charles Spurgeon, and I lumped it all as Charles Spurgeon. So just just so you know, that second part is J.D. Greer. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Anyone who has experienced the love of Jesus and and the filling of the Holy Spirit, you can't help but prophesy and proclaim that, that message. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. J.D. Greer says, you either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you are like one that has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus and you are anxious that they should find him too. At New Heights Church... We want to empower and release you as ministers. We can't do what the Holy Spirit can do. We can't do what the Holy Spirit can do. This is a promise from God. You and I get to continue the work of Jesus Christ, but we need, we need his Holy Spirit. 39 of the 40 miracles happened outside of church walls in the New Testament. 39 39 of the 40 miracles happened by lay people. The greatest ministry at New Heights Church is going to happen outside these walls by you. Not here on a Sunday. They're going to happen by you. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you are going to be emboldened. You're going to be empowered to go out and witness. In your workplaces. In your neighborhood. The Holy Spirit wants to use you. We never want to just become a a Christian ministry that takes care of our own needs. Or a place where people just attend. We want to commission every member every member. We want to push small groups to multiply. We want 
believe God, God I've, I've heard Pastor J.D. Greer say this, God is like a spiritual cyclone. He never draws you in without pushing you back out. Now here's the practical part of this. If, if we get it, it's gonna be revealed in how we pray. Here we go. We're jumping into 21 days of prayer and fasting. And for most believers, the main, and really perhaps the only subject of our prayer is usually ourselves. We pray for us. We pray for our family members and maybe a couple of sick people here and there. And if God, if God had answered all of our prayers last year, the only person that may be benefited is us. I know that's, that's harsh. I know I'm being hard. But when you're following Jesus, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, your prayers become about the mission. I'm not telling you you can't pray for yourself or you can't, but I'm telling you your, your prayer starts being focused on the mission. If God answered all the prayers you prayed last week, how many new people are in the kingdom because of your prayers? If God answered all your prayers from the year 2022, how many people did you pray into the kingdom? See, the church is a movement. Movements move, and if you're not moving, have you really, really believed the message? Complacency in the Christian life always points to being out of touch with the urgency of the message and blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's, here's our prayer. Here's why we're doing this in, in 2023. Here's why we're starting out with 21 days of prayer and fasting. We want to engage in the mission. We want to engage in the mission. I do not want to be just a regular church. There's all kinds of churches in Cincinnati that people can go to. I want to be a church that glorifies Jesus Christ, that when they walk through these doors, it's all about Jesus. Not a pastor, not the pastoral team, not leadership. It's all about Jesus Christ. And when they come in here, they experience something real. I don't care. We have an amazing worship team an amazing, gifted, talented worship team. We've got, I'm not against buildings. I'm not, obviously we just invested into this building. We're gonna keep doing that, taking care of God's house. But I am convinced that we can go outside in our parking lot, sit on orange crates and have an incredible service. And we might not even have one musical instrument and the Holy Spirit can still show up. This is real. Why would I wanna compete with all of the church's amazing programs? Why would I wanna compete with the world? I, I, I can't compete when it comes to that. But God can take them to the mat. That's a wrestling term, by the way. <laughs> they can't experience God in the secular world. They can't experience the power of the Holy Spirit through anything else but through Jesus Christ. That's it. I've got something way better than whatever the world is offering. And I want to continually point people to Jesus Christ. We're going to close today in prayer. I've gone over. We're going to close today in prayer. Our worship team's going to lead us. I'm officially dismissing you. If you have to go, that's okay. Don't feel bad about leaving. But our altars are going to be open, and we're going to spend some time in prayer. I really, truly believe that our 21 days of prayer and fasting are going to be 21 days of breakthrough. I believe that we are going to see breakthrough. And the biggest prayer from your pastor, if I can share my shepherd's heart with you today, my biggest prayer for you is that you engage in the mission. That you engage in the mission. You are called. You have a purpose for your life. I don't care if you're a teacher, a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, I don't care if you're picking up garbage Monday through Friday. I don't care what your job is. You are called. 
And God wants to empower you through his Holy Spirit to make a difference in this world and to lead people out of darkness and into light. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. God, I am thankful for the people who are here today. I am thankful for your son. I am thankful for salvation. I am thankful for the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful that we are not left alone with this mission, but you have left us your Holy Spirit. And today I pray the Holy Spirit would continue to work in our lives individually and and corporately as a body. Would you continue to lead us in this new season? Would you continue to lead us to new heights? And would this always be about your mission, about you being glorified? That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.